You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. Uh, my name is Brandon. Uh, if we have not met, I'm a happy member here at uh, Redeemer Georgetown. Uh, and as a church, we have been going through a series uh, in 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul, the author, uh, wrote the letter to Timothy, who's pastoring this church. And, and this was the last letter that Paul wrote in his life and ministry. He soon would die after this. And so there's a, a sense of urgency. This is the, uh, what you would write as the aging man writing to the young church going, hold fast, here it is. And so this is some angst to what he's saying here. And today we hit one of the most difficult passages that I have ever tried to preach uh, before taking my job with the Redeemer Network, who I work for now and love, I pastored a church in Houston for uh, almost eight years, and for sure, I would too have delegated this text out as well. So, <laughs> I see you, Robert. Well played, my man. Well played. Uh, here's the situation. Some people have come into this church. They're teaching a distorted gospel. It, it's got some shadows, but, but not the substance of the real thing. They're kind of perverting the Christian message, making their way in, uh, which is not isolated to the actual local context. This was uh, an event that would be played on repeat for 2,000 years up until today. It's why uh, I think by the Spirit's guidance, he opens this section with, in the last days, there'll be times of difficulty, the last days, this is the season we're in now. It's the, the, the period of time from resurrection to Jesus' return that we're living in right now. In these days, you're going to have people coming in, distorting the gospel, preaching a message that, that's got some shadows, but, but lacks the substance. And Paul's going to speak into it. And Paul, in this letter, in this text we're looking at, he is getting to the heart of why. Why they are teaching what they are teaching, and in doing so, he's going to get to the danger that the church is in. And so I want to, I want to frame up where we're going uh, like, like this. I want to frame it up with a question for you, a question for me. It's an ancient question, a modern question, it's an ivory tower question, it's a real life in your checkbook kind of question. It's this, like, what, what motivates you? What drives you? What, what shapes who you are? What, what forms what you believe and why you see the world the way that you see the world? What, what sits at your core that really drives and motivates you? And the answer to that question is going to get to the root of why they are teaching what they are teaching. And it's going to explain why Paul saw this church in danger. And maybe... Maybe you are too. So let's look at this text under these three headings. The root problem, the danger, and the warning. All right, the root problem, the danger, and the warning. Now, uh, for Paul, the apostle, it, it was not uncommon for him to use lists. Uh, but usually when he has a list in particular describing people or a, or a group of people, um, he's usually got a macro point to it, and he does here too. And so let's pick it up in verse 2, and I want you to listen for the word that, that gets repeated. I'm going to ask you what that word is in a minute, so just be ready to say it out loud. 
So what word gets repeated as we see this in here? Verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What, what word in there got repeated? Love. There you go. Love. Love. Lovers. This, this list that Paul gives right here in describing these people, it's bookended and it's bullseyed, which I don't think bullseyed is a word, but we're going to roll with it, with love. It's bookended and it's bullseyed with um, love. And so he starts with love. He gives some data points. He makes a statement about love, not loving good. Gives some data points. And then he finishes with love. Let me try to illustrate uh, what Paul is doing here in this, this list. Um, if I said to you this, my son is incredibly strong. I mean, freakishly strong. He set the seventh grade squat record in his school. Um, he's got good genes, apparently. <laughs> Gonna get my bird legs. Uh, he's incre- I mean, he really is banana strong. Like, it's freakish how strong he is. Uh, he, you know, he works hard, but he really is strong. What's my point? Is my point that he set the seventh grade squat record, or is it that he's strong? It's that he's strong. Seventh grade squat record, this is a data point to support my primary point of him being strong. And so when we look at this list, here's what we see. It's proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful. These are all drop-downs of lovers of self and lovers of money. This is what that life looks like. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. This is brutal. This is not somebody who loves good, treacherous. These are all drop-downs of a life of disordered love. And so here's the question. Why? Why if Paul, if the issue is what they're teaching, why does Paul address what they love? Why if the issue is what they are teaching, does Paul come in here and address what they love? And here's, here's why. Here's what Paul knows. He knows the root issue isn't what they are teaching. The root issue is what they love or who they love and who they don't love. This is the root and the core issue because what you love, who you love, it shapes what you believe. James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite uh, living uh, philosophers, theologians, authors, he has a great book um, called You Are What You Love. It's a condensed version of a bigger work. Um, I recommend the smaller work, although the bigger work is, is really, really wonderful. Th- this book, You Are What You Love, it's got a two-part premise. There's a part A and a part B. Maybe we'll get to part B later, but here's part A. Premise part A of this book is this, that you and I are fundamentally lovers. That you are not, I am not, a thinking thing on a stick. At our core, we are fundamentally lovers. And so what you love drives what you believe. And of course, uh, he knows, we know that there's some circularity to this, but at its core, you and I are fundamentally lovers, and what we love shapes how we see the world and what we believe. And these people, 
They were lovers of self, money, and pleasure, but not God or good. They were lovers of self. They were lovers of money. They were lovers of pleasure. This leads to ego greed becoming easy data points for what a life consumed with loving yourself but not others looks like. This list, proud, arrogant, ungrateful, they are all, they are all drop downs on what a destructive life looks like. Destructive for you. Destructive for your families. Destructive for the world that we live in. These are all drop downs on what a destructive life looks like. There's nothing in this list that you pull it out and go, yeah, that's good. That's good and that's right and that's, that's a life of flourishing right there. That's going to lead to flourishing for them, for their family, for their neighbors. Not one. This is a list of what a destructive life looks like. And this list is full of people who do not love God or good. Let's talk about the word good. I've actually, I think, if my memory is right, you are not going to remember this. I, I know what it's like to not remember sermons. I've only preached here a couple of, at our church a couple of times. I think last time we talked about good being a theological term, going back to Genesis 1 where God says, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's very good. That when he says they're, they're not lovers of good, this is, this is not like I feel about blue corn harvest where they have good tacos and good salsa. This is good in the theological sense. The social good, the harmony good, the shalom good, the flourishing for our neighbors and our world. Good. It has been a morning with this podium right here. Uh, and uh, this is just a continuation of that. Thank you so much. I will try not to do that again, but I make zero promises around here. This good is about fl the, the flourishing of others. And when they distort the gospel, they are distorting it for their own good and not for the good of others. They're driven by ego, desire for money and pleasure. And what's happening here is these people are coming in and Paul is saying, hey, they're, they're changing what they believe to fit what their heart wants. They're shifting what they believe to justify what their heart wants, which we all do. I had a uh, professor in seminary. Uh, he, I, th I think he was trying to have a moment with us as a class. You know, he's like, I'm going to sit the youngins down and have like a wise moment where they have this impressionable thing. And I... Um, I, I don't remember it being that impressionable, but I'm telling you about it now, so maybe it, maybe it was. He, he was telling us a story about multiple friends in seminary uh, who, uh, when he was in seminary, they all went on to do PhD work, and several of them left the faith. They walked away from the faith. And one of them, he said, one of them, I finally got him to have an honest moment with me. And I asked him why he walked away. What, what changed in his understanding of the Bible? And his friend said, Nothing. Nothing changed in my understanding of the Bible. What happened was I was 45, single, and I wanted to have sex with a clean conscience. He changed what he believed to fit what his heart wanted. Tim Keller, my hero, has a book, Counterfeit Gods, where he makes the case that the core human idols are money, sex, and power. That our core, our fundamental core idols are money, sex, power. This is what drives us and certainly would have been what was driving them. And you will change what you believe to get what you want, Paul is saying. This was their issue, and this is a fundamental core issue for us. Their root problem, the root problem was a disordered love. That what and who they loved most drove what they believed. And it does for us too, which is why they were in danger. Point two, the danger. Look at verse six. 
Look at verse 6 with me. Of these people, from among them, from among them, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at, the, at a knowledge of the truth. Okay. This is a difficult and very sensitive text that we are looking at right now. So when Paul says weak women, is he being insensitive and derogatory? No. It's not what he's doing. He's talking about women who are vulnerable. They're vulnerable. I understand why they translated it weak. It's a, it's a compound word, only used once here. I, I get why they went with that as the translation. I just don't love that translation. It's in the context, the, the, the weakness is from social vulnerability is, what, is what's being addressed here. Almost every commentator I could find thinks this is talking about widows and marginalized women. Widows and marginalized who would have been vulnerable to deception. And so the word creep, it, it, um, it's not creep like somebody, you know, creeps physically into a house. It's creep is, uh, it, it's, it's to come in through a devious means to be deceptive or dishonest, crafty even. And these women were vulnerable because they lived with particular burdens. Widows or marginalized, to give, to give one example of what I mean by that. It, it, women who were former prostitutes, which existed in this day and in our day, who, who, who would have been used for sex their entire life. If, if a man comes along and says, hey, listen, you have dignity and value, and I think you are beautiful, and you believe that, you'll believe almost anything else they say. You are Vulnerable to deception. Widows, for completely different reasons, but are still vulnerable to deception. I'm here to protect and take care of you. You are safe with me. You believe that and you would believe almost anything else they would say. You are vulnerable to deception. And then you're vulnerable to being captured, Paul says. Keep in the households and Capture weak women. This word capture is really a fascinating little term that Paul uses here. It's a, it's a military term uh, for being a prisoner of war. And it, Paul only used it two other times in the Bible. It's used a third, one other, but for Paul, three times he uses it. Let me give you two examples. Because what Paul does, he takes this military term to be a prisoner of war and he spiritualizes it. In Romans 7, he says, he's talking about the, the battle of sin that's raging inside of him. And he says I, uh, that there's a, a law waging war, <laughs> not waging war, I'm going to start over and try to read that one right. A law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. I've been taken captive to the law of sin in me. And then he used it another time in 2 Corinthians 10. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul used it two other times. He's spiritualizing this term to be a captive, taken, taken prisoner 
by the war of sin in me, or I'm, I'm taking my thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. I'm a captive to sin or to Jesus. And Paul here is taking this and he's saying, in using this term, here's what he's saying. He's saying these people are coming in and creating captives out of captives. Creating captives out of captives. The socially vulnerable already felt like captives in society. If you, um, if, if you talk to anybody who's from a marginalized community, and we have plenty of them, but if you talk to anybody who's from a marginalized community, they would say something like, I feel like I'm a captive to this status, this you fill in the blank. And they came in and they, they took captives and created deeper captives to their own sin. They created captives out of captives. Why? For their own gain. For their own good. They were exploiting the vulnerable. And here's why this was a danger for them and for us. Because we, you and I, are vulnerable too. You and I are vulnerable to far more than we would want to admit. Our, our desires, our loves, our hopes, the things that we want, they are vulnerable. We are vulnerable and they can lead us astray. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'll give you one cultural, two personal. The cultural first and I, and I do not mean for this to be a political statement. That's not my intention here. My intention is to just help protect us. But the last 15, 20 years, uh, and, uh, spiking the last six, seven years, there's been a cultural conversation about the definition of marriage. And I have a lot of Christian friends who would say something like this, who have said something like this. I... I just want that to be true. I want that to be true. I, I want the definition of marriage to be fluid. And therefore, I cannot follow Jesus anymore. I've had more than one friend make a statement similar to that to me. What's happening there? What I want to be true, shaping what I believe is true. That's what's happening there. Or how about this one? You get cancer. Cancer diagnosis. And the next thought is, God, I thought you loved me. I thought you loved me. I don't know if you're as good as I thought you were. That's my need for love, what I love, my sense of love shaping what I believe about God. Or you, you lose your job. You lose your job. Your dream job, gone, overnight. God, I thought you loved me. I'm not sure that you care about me or my family the way that you say you do. Their danger is our danger. But the vulnerable will be taken captive. And you and I are more vulnerable than we want to admit. Which is why he gives a warning. Look at verse 5, right, right back into the heart of this passage. Speaking of these people distorting, distorting the gospel, distorting this message of Jesus, he says, having the, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What, what, what does he mean by godliness? Well, th- this is just a simple statement for genuine faith, genuine love, genuine devotion to God, a faith that shapes who you are, that devotion to God, a love for God that flows out of you and informs everything about your life. And he's saying that they have the appearance of this, but it's not genuine. It's not real. It, it, it's, got the mechan- uh, um, it's got the facade, but it doesn't have the, the substance. It, it's not real, not on the inside. And because it's not real, it lacks power. It lacks power. But power to do what? Listen to this theologian. One commentator put it this way. That in Timothy, Paul links power to the presence of the Holy Spirit. As power enable perseverance through suffering. It's the power to persevere is what's being talked about here. The power to persevere, that if faith is only external, it cannot stand up to cancer. Losing your job, losing a child, it can't stand up to the brokenness of the world that we live in. This point is that a form of faith does not have the power of the living Jesus in you, and that is dangerous. It's dangerous. And he gives two examples at the end. Uh, uh, Janice and Jambres, J and J, J squared. That's what I was calling them all week since I can't pronounce the names correctly. These were Egyptian magicians in the time of Moses. They had the appearance of divine power, but eventually they got exposed. And just like them, these teachers will eventually get found out. And so the question, or a question that I just wrestled with a bit, was why would he say avoid them? Why would he say keep them away? Like on the, on the surface, right, and to make it worse, like that's the only imperative in the text. Like the only thing that Paul is saying, you absolutely must do this, it's take these people and avoid them. Just get rid of them. Stay away from them. And on the surface, that just doesn't sound very Jesus-like. Right? Like, like part of the scandal of Jesus was who he hung out with. Like, the, like all the religious leaders looked at him and went, that man is hanging with prostitutes. Period, you're sure y'all are getting that one wrong. That is a scandal of Jesus. And here Paul is saying, stay away from them. Avoid them. Why is he saying that? Why such a strong, imperative statement to avoid these people? Here's why. Here's why. Part of the job of a pastor, Timothy, is to protect it's to protect that a pastor is not a teddy bear, lovable, hubble, I don't know what, but it's, it's not just softy. It's there to protect. For sure, caregiver and also guardian. And Paul is saying to them, you are there to protect them. Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to treat them like a father to a daughter. Let me tell you what I mean. My, my oldest daughter is 14. 14-year-old kids, they start asking questions about dating. And part of my job as her dad, as the daughter, a parent, a father of three daughters who are going to be hitting the age of like, hey, when can I start dating? The answer in our house is around 40, 42 maybe. (laughs) But part of my job is to protect them, which means not any boy who wants to date my daughter gets to date my daughter. 
if you have a son in this room and they are wanting to date my daughter, you know, in 20 years, and I think no, I'm going to say no. Because part of my job is to protect my daughters. Part of the job of the pastor is to protect these people, protect the people who are vulnerable. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, they've walked away from the faith. If you let them creep into deeply, they're going to lead others away from the faith, and I want you to protect them. Which is why this warning wasn't just for them, it's also a warning for us. It's a warning that you and I need to hear because our hearts are innately prone to wander. We sing it in the great hymn. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We innately have disordered loves. We are born with disordered loves. We innately still instinctively have disordered loves. We innately love ourselves and money. I would have said to you my entire adult life up until 2014, I do not have a problem with money. Greed, I've got other issues, but greed is not one of them. That is not a problem in my life. And then I moved to Houston to pastor a church in a part of a city where it seemed like everybody in our church owned homes I couldn't afford. And all of a sudden I found out I got a problem. I got a problem. I, I, I love what money can buy and I want the money can buy that. I found out I've got a disordered love when it comes to money. It got exposed. And disordered loves, they will wreak havoc on your life. They will lead to destruction in your life. And the more you give into it, the more disordered and destructive your life will be and become. And it will remain disordered. Your life will remain in perpetual disorder until you get a vision for the one. Until you get a vision for the one who is not like these teachers creeping in, but like the one who encountered a woman at the well who had been through five husbands and the man she was sleeping with wasn't hers. And instead of, and instead of exploiting her, he treated her with dignity. A woman who was as vulnerable as they come in the world of that day, Jesus came face to face and treated her with dignity. Absolute dignity. Instead of taking her captive for His gain, He let Himself become captive on the cross for hers. He entered into and He embraced the danger of hell on the cross. He became vulnerable. He became killable in your place and in mine. And until you get a vision for Him, and I mean a vision for Him where you see Him. Not where you look at Him and know about Him, but you, you all know what it's like to be seen. Like when somebody's not just looking at you, but they see you. And until you get a vision for Him where you see Him, you're not just looking at Him, but you see Him. Your loves will remain disordered, but when you get a vision for Him, He reorders your disordered loves. He takes what is disordered and He puts it right. He reorders it so that your loves are the loves in appropriate order that are flourishing and leading to harmony and rhythm and grace and mercy. And so what do we do with this? How do we take this danger and this warning from Paul in light of what we have in Jesus? And how do we, how do we respond to this? How do we live this? What do we do with this? Here's what we do with it. You decrease your vulnerability, your vulnerability to deception, by increasing your love. You decrease your vulnerability by increasing your love. Or if I could say it this way, you crowd out vulnerability with love. 
Um, a few weeks ago, uh, I went to, um, and by a few weeks, I mean a few months ago, uh, I went to Lowe's Home Depot. There's absolutely nowhere in the world I'd rather not be. I hate going to Home Depot and Lowe's. I am not handy. I broke this and couldn't fix it. I feel uncomfortable, insecure. Everybody knows I don't belong there, and I know I don't belong there. But I went there to deal with weeds, and I asked somebody, hey, what, what do I, I, I want to get, get ahead of it. I, I, wanna, I don't want weeds overrunning my yard. And they said, here's what you got. You got to put this stuff down. You can spot treat them. But the real solution is this. You, you need to get such thick grass growing in there, there's no room for weeds to pop up. That's how you keep weeds out of your yard. You get such thick grass throughout it, there's no room for the weeds to pop up. And I was like, man, this is Georgetown, bro. That doesn't happen around here. You crowd out weeds with healthy grass. You crowd out vulnerability with love. The question is how? How? Well, the good doctor, James K. Smith, he had a part B to his book. Part A, you are what you love. You are fundamentally a lover. Part B, your loves are formed by your habits. Your, your loves are formed by your habits. Listen to what he says here. This is him. This is the doctor. Discipleship, learning to follow Jesus, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. The orientation of the heart happens through the formation of our habits of desire. Listen to this line. Learning to love God takes practice. Love it. Learning to love God takes practice. So what are the practices? What are habits? Here are a few. This is where we'll land the plane. This is a non-exhaustive list of some rhythms and some habits that form our loves and shape our loves. They flow from our love, they increase our love, and they create this circular cycle of maturity. Habit one, corporate worship. The good doctor again says, worship is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. That when we gather together, I'm talking about corporate worship, what we're doing right now, when we gather together, here's what happens. Jesus comes into focus like you're looking at a star through a telescope. He just becomes clear. He's right there. He's speaking to you. He's present at the table. He becomes there and clear. You can see Him. We, when we go through the, the order of our worship where we, where we have a call to worship and a confession of sin and then we sing, we sing with our hearts from the deep recesses of who we are. We sing out and our loves are formed and shaped. You're not a thinking thing on a stick. You're a lover. You're learning about God and having your heart formed more and more by Him. And if you're in here and you, you are not a Christian, you are more than welcome in this community and you are always wanted here. But, but let, me, let, let, me, let, me, let me give you something to try. Next time we're singing together at the end of this service next week, sing like you believe it. Just try it. Give it a shot. Sing like you believe it and see what happens. Habit two, vulnerability in community. Be vulnerable with the brothers and the sisters with the church that are around you. Listen, the more vulnerable you are inside the church, the, least, or the less vulnerable you are to deception. The more you are known by others, that your heart is laid bare, it's open, it's in front of others, it decreases your vulnerability to being deceived. Now listen, I have been burned too. Vulnerability is difficult. Being honest about yourself with others is difficult. And it's worth it. 
It's the road to maturity and stability and decreasing your vulnerability to deception. Habit number three this is the last one. Again, non-exhaustive, but confession, repentance, and prayer. Confession, repentance, and prayer. Don't just be vulnerable about you, but confess the broken, deep, dark, hidden things in your life. Repent of them. Actually turn away from them. Turn away from them in community back toward Jesus. And prayer. And by prayer, I, I don't mean um, that you have to have, you, you know, like a prayer closet and 60 minutes every morning and evening. Like, that's great if you do. You're my hero. But in the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life, just pray. One of my spiritual disciplines is to just pray while I'm running. To turn off the podcast I'm listening to in a run. And to pray, I mean. Just pray while I am running. In the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life, build prayer into those rhythms. I'm talking about ordinary life with, with a gospel intentionality is what these habits are. But you habit these into your life. You rhythm them into your life and you will have a love. You'll have a love that comes with the power of the presence of the living Christ in you. One that can stand up to suffering. One that can stand up to the most broken parts of your own life or the world we live in. One that not even the gates of hell can overcome. Let's pray.